standing at the walls of Dis, and things are about to get a lot worse. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. In this podcast, as you well know, we walk passage through passage through comedy, and we are up through Inferno to Canto 9, lines 34 through 63. If you haven't been with us so far, let me just explain where we are. We are standing outside the walls of Dis, the city of hell. Virgil has been stopped, blocked by a bunch of demons. He can't seem to get through. He claimed a while back that someone was coming to save them, but they're still just standing there. And in the last canto, Virgil seemed full of doubt. The pilgrim seemed full of doubt. So much doubt was going on in every direction. And for good reason, because of these lines, canto nine, lines 34 through 63. He said more, but I can't recall any of it because my eyes had pulled all my awareness up to the high tower with the fiery turret where all at once appeared three hellish furies painted with blood. They had the limbs and shape of women, but iridescent green hydras wrapped around them. They had little snakes and horned serpents for hair that wound across their horrible brows. And he at once knew them as the ladies-in-waiting for the Queen of Eternal Wailing. Watch out, he said to me, the ferocious Erinnyes. That's Megara on the left side. The one who cries on the right is Electo, and the one between them is Tisiphone. And then he shot up. They raked their breasts with their fingernails, beat them with their hands, and shrieked so loudly that out of fear I pressed close to the poet. Let me be succumbed! Let me take him to stone! They said as they peered down at us. We didn't do right when it came to avenging Theseus' attack. Turn around! Keep your eyes closed! If the Gorgon shows herself and you see her, you won't get back to the world above. As my master said this, he took hold of me, spun me around, and not trusting my own hands, put his over my eyes as well. O you who are of healthy intellects, look well at the teaching that hides itself under the veil of these strange verses. We're going to stop with the poet calling out to us to look well at what's below the veil of these strange verses. This is a packed passage, and I'm going to take it in four parts. Let's go slowly. This is going to get a little bit into the weeds. Just let me have it, because this passage is really tough to unpack. Okay, let's start for those first three lines. He said no more. They've been talking about what are they going to do and someone will be coming and all that stuff that had come before. But what I want to focus on is that next line, but I can't recall any of it. Memory fails the poet. Remember the opening invocation to the muses in Canto 2, lines 4 through 6? And it was this invocation to the classical muses. Go back and look it up. And to unerring memory, which will help me take on this journey. That call for unerring memory is part of the lofty stance that kind of imbues the early part of this poem. This kind of epic voicing, including an 
oh, a prayer to the classical muses. But here, apparently memory has failed. That shows us that something has changed. We've had a change from a more lofty epic stance, Virgil, my master, my authority, as Dante the Pilgrim said early on, to this, which is, I hate using this word, but I'm going to use it, more modern, more human. The Pilgrim is filled with fear, and so filled with fear at this moment that even the poet writing can't recall any of it. He said more, but I can't recall any of it. Why? Well, that's the next part of this passage. That's the coming of the Furies. His eyes pull all of his awareness up to the high tower. Remember, there are minarets or mosques on this thing. Fiery turret where all at once appeared three hellish furies. Here they are, finally arriving on the walls of Dis. Painted with blood, they have the limbs and shape of women, but iridescent green hydras wrapped around them. They're little snakes and horned serpents for hair that wound across their horrible brows. Let's talk about these for a minute, the Furies, who suddenly appear on the walls of Dis. If you remember, the walls of Dis had been full of demons, of fallen angels, who were taunting them. And now suddenly, the walls of Dis are topped by classical figures, the Furies, who appear in many different places. For example... In the Aeneid, and this is where I'm about to go down into the weeds, in Book 6, we find out that Tisiphone, one of the Furies, stands on the walls of Dis in Virgil's poem, and she opens them wide for the very worst criminals to let those criminals go down into Tartarus, the lowest pit. So there she is in the Aeneid in Book 6, at least Tisiphone, and we find out, and this is really not for this episode, this is for what comes later, but one of the criminal types that she opens wide the gates of Dis for are those who commit fraud. If you know anything about a comedy and about Dante's Inferno, you know that's going to play out in, in several cantos ahead, many cantos ahead. But they're not just in the Aeneid. In Stasius's Thebia, Tisiphone waters Oh, the snakes. She waters her own snakes on the banks of Cocytus in the underworld. In Lucan, in the Pharsalia, Erichtho arouses these furies to help her revivify the corpse on the battlefield. This is a complex set of illusions in the Furies. And it's even said here that he, Virgil, knows that they are the ladies-in-waiting for the queen of eternal wailing, that is Proserpina or Persephone, that is the queen of the dam. So we've got a thick set of references from Stasius, from Lucan, from Ovid. We've got all kinds of um, classical imagery running around. And then Virgil goes on and names them. That's Megara on the left. The one who cries on the right is Electo. And the one between them is Tisiphone. Let me tell you that over 700 years of commentary, you can only imagine the allegorical interpretation put on these three standing up there on the walls. You have to go back to Stasius, and you have to go back to Lucan, and you have to go back to Virgil, and even back to Ovid in order to fill in their characters, bring them forward here, and make allegories out of them. I'm not going to do that bit of making allegories out of them. 
What I'm going to do is step away from it and just say this. This is a complex Christian restaging of classical myths on the walls of Dis. Dante has taken centuries of tradition about the Uranies, the Furies, and he's fused it all up into this most Christian poem, putting them up there on the gates. And if I wanted to make an allegorical reading, which the passage itself seems to invite me to do, O you of healthy intellects, as it says, look well at the teaching that hides itself under the veil of these strange verses. If I want to do that, then I've got to jump back out to Virgil, to Ovid, to Stasius, to Lucan. I've got to find all of these threads. Here's the deal. If you want to allegorize Electo and Tisiphone and Megara, what I'm saying is that you have to go back to the classical tradition and look at them. So let's say I want to make Megara anger, and I want to make Tisiphone despair, and I want to make, I'm just making this up out of my head, just off the top of my head, and you know, I want to make Electo um, lust, then I have to go back to some tradition somewhere, and I have to find that they behave in this way. For example, if Tisiphone opens the gates of Dis, then maybe she represents despair allegorically, and therefore there I have allegorized her as the embodiment of despair that opens the gates to the lower pit of Tartarus, and then I take that allegory there and bring it forward into this poem. See how complicated this is? I'm being asked to go back, pick up characteristics of them from the past, and bring them here, because all Dante says is, you know, here's one, here's another, here's the one in the middle. That's all he says. So in order to develop full-on allegories, which the passage seems to ask me to do later at the end, you know, readers with healthy intellects look below the veil here, which it asks me to do, then I have to go back to the classical tradition, pick up characteristics of them there, bring them forward into this moment, set down the allegory here, and explain it, thereby taking my Christian poem back to Ovid, back to Lucan, back to Virgil, back to wherever you want to go, pulling it there, their characteristics out of there, and pulling them up into this. Super complicated, Christianizing, classically allegorizing. <laughs> Figures. I don't even know how to say it. You're allegorizing classical figures using a Christian matrix to bring them forward into a Christian poem to interpret their position here. That is a super complicated functionality of the allegory. Dante is Christianizing classical mythology and asking us to go back there and as it were, Christian allegorize that classical mythology. Virgil shuts up. The Furies rake their breasts with their fingernails. They beat them with their hands. They shriek so loudly that out of fear, I pressed close to the poet. So our pilgrim is scared, and he's edging up against Virgil as this is all happening around him. But surely, in fact, behind this is the poet, Dante, 
edging closer to Virgil. We have, as I said, come to a place that is the end of the Virgilian landscape. Beyond these walls, Aeneas and Virgil did not go. And yet here, the references not only to Ovid, but to Stasius, to Lucan, to so many other poets are becoming thick in the text. And so our poet is pressing closer, our poet Dante, is pressing closer to the poet Virgil as he himself is starting out on his own path beyond which Virgil could not go in the Aeneid. Wow, that's a lot to say. (laughs) Seems like a lot to say right there, but I think it's very important. And I think that bit out of fear, I press close to the poet, I think that's as much about the poet Dante as it is about the pilgrim Dante. The Furies scream, let Medusa come, then we'll turn him to stone. We didn't do right when it came to avenging Theseus's attack. Theseus descended into the underworld to rescue Persephone or Proserpina depending on which way you use her name. And when Theseus went down, we'll get into more of this in the next episode of the podcast. When Theseus went down, he gets trapped in the underworld and Hercules has to rescue him. And so they're irritated that they let Theseus escape, that Hercules got him out. Um, There's all kinds of mythological references running around under this. But again, look at how thick with classical mythology this passage is. It's absolutely insane in the middle of this Christian poem. And also, you should think, there's a little bit of the crusading spirit here, right? Because here are these furies standing up on the walls of Dis. And they're taunting them from the walls. They're yelling down at them, taunting them. Surely in the walls that have minarets or mosques on top of them, surely in the way the crusaders were taunted when faced with the fortifications that they met in the Levant and elsewhere across the Middle East. It's surely got all that running out behind it somewhere. And this Christianizing of classical or classicizing Christian imagery that's happening here. It's so complicated. That's why I said I wanted to point all this out before we got further into the weeds here in the passage. So let's pass on to the third part. Virgil says, turn around, keep your eyes closed. If the Gorgon shows herself and you see her, you won't get back to the world above. So Dante was right. In the previous episodes, we talked about how his fears were a reader, you know, imagine what I felt. I went weak in the knees. I thought I'd never get back from that place. Apparently, there is a real threat here that if the Gorgon, the Medusa, shows herself, it's all over. Let's talk about this for just a second. What's going on here? We know that Medusa has the ability to turn men into stone when they look at her because of her snaky hair and her hideous face. Is there something else going on under here about the poetics of the poem? Are these classical images threatening Dante the poet with poetic petrification? In other words, If the Medusa shows up and if this unbelievably complicated landscape of classical imagery continues to proliferate in the poem, is there a way that the poem itself will break down? And let me say, let me just say personally, I feel this passage breaking. 
at least from my eyes. Not that it's breaking down and not making sense, but the weight on it of the classical imagery is heavier than any single passage we've met so far, at least as far as my eyes can see. This has got the heaviest weight of tradition sitting on top of it. And there is a way in which were Medusa to come out and were the imagery of Theseus and Stasius's poems and Ovid and Perseus and Lucan and the Pharsalia and Erichtho and were this stuff to just keep proliferating here and the Furies and Persephone that the poem itself would break down under the weight of it. It would petrify under all of this classical architecture. Is that the real threat? And I think it is. If the Medusa comes, if they bring it out and bring her out and, you know, and try to turn the pilgrim into stone, this poem will never get written. And let's face it, with too much classical imagery, this thing can't get written. You can't write this Christian poem if you are going to just be in a constant state of classicizing it, in a constant state of referring back to Lucan and Stasius and Ovid and Virgil and all the rest of them. You're never going to get this thing done, and you're never going to get it where you need to get it in Christian theology. And so because of that, it strikes me that the threat here that the Medusa represents is not only an existential threat to the pilgrim, of course, but there is a threat to the poet too, a threat of poetic petrification under the gaze of the Medusa. And because of this, isn't it interesting that Virgil saves him? As my master said this, the poem goes on, he took hold of me, spun me around, and not trusting my own hands, put his over my eyes as well. Okay, Virgil's corporeality, how does that work? What are Virgil's hands like? If a shade put its hands over my eyes, does that mean I can't see through the shade's hands? I don't know, but there seems to be something here about double blindness. The pilgrim closing his eyes, and Virgil further closing his eyes, there seems to be here something that is strangely ironic, that Virgil is the one who saves him from the poetic and possible existential petrification that is the threat in the text itself. So there is a way in which I'm not Oh, how do I say this? The poet is saying, I'm not turning away from classical literature I'm just recognizing the threat inherent in it. And there's a complex irony here. I mean, how do I say this? The, the, the pilgrim closes his eyes, Virgil spins him around, and it's just at this moment that as Virgil covers the pilgrim's eyes, the pilgrim wants us to open our eyes to the allegory of the poem, which brings us to the last section. O oh, you who are of healthy intellects, the poet steps out and says, look well at the teaching that hides itself under the veil of these strange verses. One of the most commented on tercets, these three lines, in all of Canto 9. So let's just go through this carefully. I've got four things I want to say about this. First, Dante the Poet again steps out. This is the second time in this sequence. Back in Canto 8, line 94, we had that think reader, how I went 
weak in the knees. That was the poet stepping out to say, think about how afraid I was. Now in this same sequence in front of the walls of Dis, we have the poet again making his presence felt. Oh, you are of healthy intellects. Look well at the teaching that hides itself under the veil of these strange verses. I just want to say that there must be much going on here in this long sequence in front of the gates of Dis for the poet to twice break the narrative flow to remind us to pay attention, that the poet reveals himself twice, says to me that much is going on here about the writing of poetry, about the writing of this poetry. Okay, that's the first thing. Now the second. Notice he says, look well at the teaching that hides itself under the veil of these strange verses. Veil. So the text is clothed in some way. Or, and this is a big one, perhaps this is a reference to the veil of the temple. The temple that the Israelites were expected to build in the wilderness had a thick curtain between the inner part of the temple and then what was so-called the Holy of Holies. If you want to look this up, this is in Exodus, uh, I think it's uh, uh, 26, verse about 31 to 34, along in there. And you can see this description of this thick, a regal curtain that separated off the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the tablets with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments were kept. And this veil was between the two. And the reason this is important is because according to Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27, verse 51, and the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 15, verse 38, that veil was ripped at the death of Christ, that veil between the Holy of Holies and the, and the more open part of the temple was ripped when Christ died on the cross, according to those two Gospels. What happens here is that, essentially, these New Testament writers have allegorized Torah. They have taken that veil as a way in which humans are cut off from the Holy of Holies and only the high priest can enter. And at the death of Christ, if you take the allegory of the Gospels, then that veil is ripped in, in half, and now humans can enter the Holy of Holies because of the death of Christ. That's the allegorization of the Torah passage that's going on in the Gospels. And you'll note that that big allegorization of the passage is kind of what the poet is asking us to do with his text. Again, to take it and look at the allegory behind it. Why do I say it's an allegory? Because he uses the word veil. And in Dante's uncompleted treatise, The Convivio or The Banquet, in book two in the first chapter, Dante lays out, our poet lays out the various ways that poetry can be interpreted. And when he comes to the allegorical interpretation of poetry, he refers to allegory as a veil there. So again, it seems like because of the convivio, because of the gospel references because of the Exodus reference in Torah, this veil bit is some kind of strange opening into a deeper meaning, or it's an it's a request as the gospel writers allegorize the Exodus text. It's a request for us to allegorize this text in some way and to figure out what's going on here. Okay, what is going on here? That leads me to my third point. 
would be hard for me to tell you how much commentary lies under this very passage because of this tercet of, oh, you who are of healthy intellects, look well at the teaching that hides itself under the veil of these strange verses. So very much has been written about it. And much of it, I will admit to you, is heavily inconclusive. Does this request that we look under the veil, does it refer back to Medusa? Does it refer back to Medusa and the Furies? Or does it refer to the entire sequence in front of the walls of Dis? The commentators are of no agreement to this. And some of them, I should tell you, believe that this tercet, look well under the veil, refers to what comes next in the next episode of Working with Dante. So some of them think that this tercet is actually forward-looking, that it, in other words, it's the setup for the next scene. Basically, I'm not telling you anything, I hope, but basically they're about to be saved. So some people say, uh, look, no, this doesn't refer to the Medusa and the Furies and all that stuff. It refers to what's coming next. I think the logic of it seems to me that it looks back at what we've come over, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> Plenty of very smart commentators think it's forward-looking, but nobody can really decide when it looks back how far back. Do we go all the way back to Phlegius? Do we go all the way back only to the Furies? Do we go back to the demons on the walls? Do we go back when they shut the gates and on Virgil's face or on his chest? Do we go back to that? Where? How far do we go back? And the commentators become incredibly obsessed then with what is the allegory here? For example, is the Medusa who comes out and threatens the petrification, is that despair in the allegorical reading? Is that fury and anger? Is that the hardened will that is the final threat that you, you know, you up to that would stop your journey to redemption is the hardening of your will in the same way that the Medusa turns you into stone. The Furies, are these the three main types of sin that Virgil is about to outline for us? Canto and a half ahead? Is this the is this where we're headed? That's that these are the three types of sin? Does this tersa um, does it refer to Virgil's hands only? There are some people who think that, that it only refers to Virgil's hands over the pilgrim's eyes and that that's the allegory you're being asked to explore. Um, are we looking at this that classical literature can protect you when you get out of your depth? That's a fascinating idea, right? I mean, Lana, the, the early critic of the poem, the early commentator, claims that Medusa represents heresy. If you don't know, we're about to step from the circle of anger into the circle of heresy. And so Medusa is the hardened stance of the heretic. Boccaccio claims that the Medusa represents obstinate sensuality. That is a kind of sensuality, the final last gasp of Francesca and Chaco and all these people with their passions out of control. The Medusa is the last gasp of this before we descend down into hell. And I should tell you that part of that Boccaccian reading is that uh, there's a warning here about people who take the text as too literal. They focus on the sensuality and poetics of the text and don't understand its deeper theological reading. So <laughs> is that all part of the allegory that's going on here? You can feel how complicated the task set before us is. If we're supposed to read the Furies, if we're supposed to read all of this as some kind of giant allegory. What's it an allegory of? And you know what I think. 
I think it's an allegory of writing. Of course, I've set that up. I think it's an allegory of writing the comedy. But most commentators would disagree with me. They would say it's a theological allegory. So let me make my fourth point. This is the first time the poet has felt compelled to close down interpretation. Ah, this reading of it is my own, but remember I've told you up to this point that the poet is opening the poem in so many different ways to interpretive stances. I feel that this tercet is the first time that the poet has felt compelled to narrow it down, to direct my response in some way. This is a direct, for me, this is a direct address with a Christian reference, the veil of the temple, asking me to Christianize this scene, asking me to look back on it in all of those allegorical readings and in some way to Christianize it. And while that might be a great strategy for the poem itself, it represents for me the first moment at which Dante the poet is uncomfortable with the wild, woolly, and open-ended nature of the text he's been creating. And instead of just letting me go crazy with the allegory here, he's feeling the need to channel me into a Christian set of references, Veil of the Temple, in order to understand this classical scene. I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad. I'm saying that that is, in fact, a writerly strategy. After all, writers write texts, and then one of the problems is they get a little worried about how you're going to read it. Oh, God, are they going to know what I meant? Are they going to take it the way I want them to take it? And so sometimes they feel the need to back up and explain it to you just a little bit. One of the reasons that I love Emily Dickinson's poetry is because I know of no single place where Dickinson ever backs up and seems to want to control my response to her poetry. It seems to me that her poetry is so open-ended and so airy and so full of space like a cathedral, and she never seems uncomfortable with that. For me, this is the first moment in which our poet exhibits some sort of discomfort. And so while early on in that first address we had back in Canto 8 of re-listen reader, you know, think about how I went weak in the knees. Imagine that, how I, what happened to me back then. That seemed to me more calling me to a human and emotional response to the scene. This is calling me out as a critic and interpreter to figure out the allegory and in so doing it's directing me in a specific way to do something to a scene. And it's the first time we've seen this. Let me just play my cards. My card, this, <laughs> so silly, but I'm just going to play the whole stack of them here. And it's like we're playing bridge and I suddenly turned over every card in my hand and showed it to you. Basically, here's what I think. The Inferno is an unbelievably 
open and airy architecture most of the time that allows a kind of play of meaning that is fantastic. The Purgatorio extends that. And in fact, for me, the Purgatorio is partly a grand commentary on how you write the Inferno. The Inferno is this grand architecture. Once we get to the Purgatorio, we're going to have so many discussions about poetry and poetic techniques all in purgatory that to me part of what happens in the purgatorio is that basically we have a commentary on how the poetry of the inferno got established in paradiso for me what we have is a closing down of the interpretive strategies and a narrowing of the poem. There's a reason why so many people find Paradiso so hard, and that is because the poem itself, while it becomes increasingly gymnastic and agile and gorgeous, the language of Paradiso is like nothing I promise you've ever read. Yet at the same time, the interpretive strategies are narrowed in the Paradiso, and the poet is feeling the need to channel the poem in a certain way. So, there, I've played all my cards, and this is the first moment in which I see the poet attempting to direct my strategy. This is a complicated passage. It's complicated because we've got the Furies up there, because we've got Medusa, because we've got the poet stepping out, because we've got Virgil doing something that I'm asked to interpret in some way, putting his hands over the pilgrim's eyes. Wow, it, it, you can see the weight on this passage. The next passage in the next episode of Locking with Dante will seem like air. That's because I think the threat here is the petrification of too much classical literature sitting all on top of us. That's one possible way to move out from underneath Virgil is just to start citing everybody you know, Ovid and Stasius and I don't know, everybody you could possibly imagine just quoting from them. That's one possible way to go forward and bring up every classical myth from Theseus to Hercules, all of them just throw them at us. Yep, that is one way to get out from under Virgil, but there's a better way. The better way to write the story and you're going to have to wait for the next episode of Walking with Dante for that to happen subscribe to this podcast rate it if you look on the Apple page you can go right to the bottom you can see write a review write a review right there show your host some love <laughs> I need a little love just like Dante needs a little Anthony J. I need a little love so write your review right there connect with me on Twitter under the hashtag walking with Dante or just look me up under my own name Mark Scarborough easiest to connect there there is a Facebook page for walking with Dante I update every episode there not so much information goes on there more goes on on Twitter but either way connect with me I'll connect with, back with you and come back next time because we are gonna finally finish our time in front of the walls of Dis on the next episode of Walking with Dante.